Hello, my lovely people, and welcome to The Fletcher Files, a Murder, She Wrote podcast with your host, Monty. So this week, we will be talking about murder, according to Maggie. Season 6, episode 17, first aired March 3rd, 1990. And the freebie, okay, not the IMDb, that one was real sparse. The freebie... Description reads, Jessica's former student, creator of a highly rated TV series, becomes a suspect when the network programmer is murdered. So, yeah and no. Like, this episode moved very quickly. And other than having to give an alibi during the regular investigative questioning, People, there was no focus, like no significant time spent on any, on this person. Okay, so on Maggie, I'll say. Because <laughs> they identified a proposed suspect who, of course, was not the murderer because murder she wrote, right? But yeah, I I wouldn't even consider... I wouldn't even say that Maggie was considered a suspect for real. You know what I mean? Just like anyone who had a reason, who had been around or had a reason to kill the person would be questioned. So no further than that. But anyway, so we have a little bit of trivia and it says the episode's lead actor quote, Burt Rogers, is making fun of actor Fred Dreyer, who was notoriously difficult on the set of Hunter, 1984, on which this episode's Beat Cop, which is the name of the series, is loosely based. Now, Burt is super dramatic. He had a problem with everything, okay? (laughs) He is a nuisance. So... Yeah, shout out to Fred. (laughs) They wrote a whole episode loosely based on how terrible, or I won't say terrible, how dramatic of a person and difficult you were to work with. Yikes. So let's get to the returners. We have five of them. So first we have Talia Balsam, and we will recognize her as Debbie Delancey, Season one, episode 17, footnote to murder. In this episode, she plays Julie Preitzer. Preitzer. Now, she looks familiar. I cannot place her in footnote to murder. I have no idea who she was in the scheme of things. Maybe she was the romance novelist. Maybe that was her. I don't remember who she was. But in this episode, this will be her last Murder, She Wrote appearance. Then we have Diana Canova. And we will recognize her as Joan Germain from season one, episode nine, Death Cast a Spell. Now, she was Jessica's publisher's assistant, who was 
infatuated well fangirling out about Caliastro the hypnotist and she lied on her boss Marilyn I think the boss's name was Marilyn and said and sent a wire okay mind you this was in the early 80s okay sent a wire to Jessica not money but a letter okay (laughs) a message I should say to Jessica claiming to be from Marilyn and requesting her to come to Colorado, wherever this was. Okay, wherever this was. And so when Jessica gets there and she meets with Joan, and of course she knows Joan and she's asking where her publisher is, it then becomes clear that Joan had her supervi- her boss sign the request for Jessica to come, but was not aware that this was going on. So that was Joan. In this episode, she plays Margaret Mary or Mary Margaret because not for nothing, it's said both ways, okay? (laughs) I think it's written as Mary Margaret in IMDb, but Jessica calls her Margaret Mary in her intro to this episode. But this is Maggie McCauley, okay? And next we have... Leanne Hunley, who we will recognize as Shannon McBride, season five, episode two, A Little Night Work. She was the insurance adjuster or investigator, I should say. Remember, she was standing on the balcony outside the window, knocking on Jessica's (laughs) balcony window and then had to hold up her badge to show that she was an insurance investigator and not some common thief. Although Dennis did come, Dennis Stanton, this is when we first meet him. I believe, is it when we first meet him? Yes, I believe so. Yeah. And so that was Leanne when we first met her. She was Shannon McBride. In this episode, she plays Dana Darren. She's an actress on Beat Cop. Now I've never seen Hunter, so I don't know the dynamic between um, assuming that the main guy's name is Hunter and if he has a female counterpart. Uh, Yeah, yeah, so there's that. Anyway, then we have Gary Sandy and we will recognize him as Joe Bleen from season one, episode 10, Capital Offense. Now, he is clean shaven in this episode. So you may not instantly recognize him, but Joe Bleen, he was one of the congressional assistants for the previous congressperson that Jessica was replacing as a placeholder until they had the election, right? And so he turned out to be... Well, go and watch that episode and listen to the review. It's a good one. Okay, I it's one of my favorite episodes. So there's that. But it is gruesome how they don't show it, thankfully. But it's gruesome how the woman, Marta Craig, was murdered. Yeah. Yeah. So there's that. In this episode, he plays Kenneth Carmody 
or Carmody. Okay, because he surely says and pronounces it that way at least once. And this, unfortunately, is his last Murder, She Wrote episode. I had high hopes for him. You know, he looked like somebody I would have seen in a later episode, but apparently not. This was his last episode. And finally, we have Tim Thomerson, and we will recognize him as Lieutenant Clyde Pitts from season one, episode 16, Sudden Death. So that was the episode that had um, Caitlyn Jenner at the time going by the name Bruce Jenner. And it was the football team. Yeah, and this was the guy who (laughs) was betting on the game, okay? So, and he was upset that he missed the final quarter or the final few minutes and seconds, actually. I think it was like the final seconds of the football game where this losing team finally won because he was helping Jessica solve a murder. Yeah, he was low-key, high-key pissed about it, okay? (laughs) He's like, I missed the game. I missed it. This is a once in a lifetime. And you got to think, he didn't like set it up to record it, but I'm sure, I'm sure it's going to be replayed on the news over and over and over again, okay, that night. So just get home for the 10 o'clock news or the 11 o'clock news. Or the 7 a.m., the 5, 6, 7 a.m. news as well. Because I'm sure the sports section is going to have this legendary play, this once-in-a-lifetime play, repeated over and over and over again. So don't be so salty, okay? You didn't see history in the making, but you solved a murder. Priority, sir. Priority, sir. Anyway, in this episode, he plays Burt Rogers, the lead on Beat Cop. Despite the fact that it's technically an ensemble cast, he he's the difficult one. And this is also his last episode of Murder, She Wrote. So let's get into the cast and then the episode. So we have Lieutenant Vincent Palermo. We have Julie Pritzer, Maggie McCauley, Vi who's the secretary. She just goes by Vi. Okay, V-I, Vi, that's it. Then we have Brian Thursden, Dana Darren, Andy Butler, Leo Kaplan, Keith Carmody, and Burt Rogers. So the show opens up with Jessica reciting a poem about a rose, right? And come to find out, it was written by one of her former students, Margaret Mary or Mary Margaret, okay? Now we remember in Old Habits Die Hard that, (laughs) a mess, uh, that there was a Mary Margaret, a Margaret Mary, and there was a third Mary Margaret, uh, variation. Okay. It was the three nuns who would just like giggle and bake. So (laughs) anyway, so we have that kind of confusion here. Mary, Margaret, Margaret, Mary, whatever. She goes by Maggie. She's one of Jessica's former students and went off to college and tried to become a writer. And 
she could not get anything sold, okay? But at the age of 25, so not super fresh out of college, but, you know, a few years into the work world, and she sold her first short story to Grizzly Detective Stories. Jessica's misremembering, perhaps. <laughs> She's like, I hope that's not the title. But anyway, it was hard-boiled detective crime, true crime, not true crime, crime type of short story. And she sold it and she wrote another one and that sold as well. So after that, she spent her time writing detective stories half the time and the other half of the time she was writing her poetry and, and even a romance novel, I believe Jessica said, and they all were returned back, but the detective stories were selling well enough for her to have an income, right? And so at some point, she then got the job as head writer and now apparently producer, can we, yeah, of a TV series, a very popular TV series, Beat Cop, B-E-A-T, Cop, right? So we then see, Jessica turns it on. She's like, oh, we might be able to catch it. And that's how we find out that she is the writer. So she's, it sounds like she's the creator, the writer and the producer of this show. So then we now are into the story. Now we have, are about to meet Maggie. And she's currently at her computer, a very 19 a late 1980s model computer. And she is typing out a scene for Beat Cop. And we see Bert acting it out in real time. You know what I mean? Like you can see the scene as if it was staged on a soundstage. And then she stops. And as she's erasing the words, he's running backwards. It was actually very cute. I did like that. I thought that was funny and a nice, nice addition. Like it didn't take too much. It was funny, appropriate, loved it. So then she gets a call and it's basically the director or one of Bert's handlers, somebody from the show calls her and basically Bert is causing problems. So she goes down there and she bumps into Andy, who is a fellow actor, not to her, but fellow to Bert. He is the captain of the police department, if I remember correctly. And he's fine. Like, he's fine. He has the uh, tissues around his collar because he was in makeup. And so she, he's like, yeah, he's on one today. So we're wishing for the best because we got to get this in the bag. So she goes and now they're on the soundstage. So all the other actors, the camera people, the director, all of these other people, right, are standing around while he is putting on this performance of being upset. And he is like, who wrote this? I would never say this. I hate this, blah, 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 whatever. 
We also find out that Dana, his co-host, she wants off the show. And Bert, what he what his specific complaint actually is that in the scene, he calls the forensic lab and he hears from them that they've compared the bullets and it's a match. It's a ballistics match. So he's upset because that would mean that the forensic scientist is the person who actually solved the crime. And when I tell you the look on Maggie's face, just like I have lost brain cells listening to this man. Like, are you serious? And he is just very upset. He's like very upset. And so she's like, just read the lines. Like, how is this difficult? And so he says, I can't find the motivation. And Maggie turns around and she says, we pay you enough to buy a new Rolls Royce every week. Is that not enough motivation? And he's like, no, it's not, sir. We don't have to fight. (laughs) Apparently, unlike what is happening now in 2023, where we have a writer strike and an actor strike, right? Because of being underpaid here. Apparently everybody on the show is getting paid an immense amount of money, just a ridiculous amount of money. And they have no complaints about the dollars, the cents. Okay. The check's clear and the amount on the check is enough for everybody else to be like, shut your face and get to acting because my, to put the gas in my Maserati, Okay, which is only my Monday car is expensive. So (laughs) shut up and say the lines at the same time. Yes, shut up and say the lines. So he he's like, that's not enough. So Maggie on the fly is like, how about this? How about Dana makes the call, you know, No, actually, let me take it back a step. So Maggie asked him, well, how do you know that the bullets match? You're so sure about this. How do you know that they match without speaking with ballistics? And he's like, I know it in here. And he points to his chest as in, like, I know it in my heart, my spirit, my soul, my being. And again, the look on her face is just like this idiot. But you know what? I drive a Mercedes convertible. I just, uh-huh. I got to pay that car note every month. <sighs> Let's figure this out, okay? <laughs> I like to eat three times a day, okay? So she says, all right, fine, fine. How about Dana makes the call because she wants to go buy the book and you and just confirm what you feel in here and she points to her chest you know mocking him and he is like oh okay yeah that'll work like okay great great dana you'll make the call let's get this going so maggie is in walking out and she bumps into her agent leo and 
she he she is trying to get him to sell another show for her, right? She has actually two shows, okay? Not him, but we find out about a second show. This show, or TV series, I should say, is Baby Cried the Blues, right? And so he says, well, they loved it. You know, the secretary read it and then read the actual 200-page script, Maybe it was a movie, but I think it was a treatment for a TV series. But anyway, and then read the summary to the person that they were trying at the network, I guess. And it was like, they loved it, but it's just, it's just not the time yet. Okay. It needs more conflict in it. And Maggie's like, no, they don't want more conflict in that. They want another cop show. Like, that's not what I'm trying to do. And Leo's like, you need to be concerned about network problems, okay? And she's like, what What do you mean? Like, we've been in the top spot for the past two seasons. And Leo says, well, with Keith Carmody in, in charge, nobody's safe. So the next scene, we're in Keith Carmody's office, and he's there with Brian, who is the president of Monolith. Right. So there's Federated Broadcasting Service, FBS, which Kenneth is Ken Keith. Oh my God. Keith is the vice president of programming. I think that's what he is, but the top guy apparently for this. And he's just been brought in. He's been at two previous television studios or stations, I should say. And he has been there for three months and he is, what he's observed in those three months makes him confident that this station is in need of an overhaul as he did with the prior two studios. My question is, were those two studios successful? But like, I'm guessing maybe it was after he came in because why would he then get hired by this third studio? Unless he sold himself really, really well, like blamed other people for any mistakes and issues that he had and then sold himself like, oh, before the cards fell. It seems like that's probably what he did. So he probably was at Studio One, made devastating changes. And before the crap hit the fan, he got to Studio Two, right? So by the time it hit the fan, somebody else was holding the bag. Okay. And then that's probably what happened with the second studio. He went in there, wrecked shop, and then parlayed his way to FBS. And now he's planning to do the same thing. So I really don't think that it worked at the prior stations, but that he got out before everything fell apart. And as they say, the roosters came the chickens came home to roost. <laughs> chickens came home to roost. So he is explaining to them that he wants to get rid of the entire night's programming, okay? Including Beat Cop. And Brian is like, but we're winning the time period that we're in. Like, why would you get rid of a show that's successful? 
And so he's like, I don't care about the numbers. What? As soon as he said that, you should have been like, oh, he lied about everything. Can we research the other studios and what happened there? Can we talk to people? Okay. Because you're talking about, I don't care about the numbers. I want to get more young people. Why do you want to get more young people to watch this? Because at the end of the day, it's advertising dollars. What advertisers are paying the best money? And why would you want to direct this to young kids like or young people? I don't know what his definition of young people are, but I know under 25, I didn't have any money for real, for real. Okay. <laughs> school and then, you know, undergrad, then law school. And I was just starting out as a baby lawyer. I wasn't even, I hadn't even gotten licensed yet. <laughs> It, it was on its way though. It was, mm-hmm, yes. But I I wouldn't have any money to buy stuff. I was still asking my parents for money. Like my first real paycheck, you know what happened? Student loans snatched it, <laughs> okay? <laughs> Before I could set up a program, you know what I mean? Like I was like, oh my God, I'm rich. And then student loan repayments kicked in. So I don't know what younger people he's talking about. Because that's going to be your parents' money. And not everybody's parents are throwing money at them. So he he's better suited to leave the show as it is. So Brian is like, we cover all different age groups. Like we're successful in all of the age groups, not just... For, so it, that includes younger people. And he's like... And, and Brian says, and actually it's entertaining. And so Keith is like, I don't watch, I've never seen Beat Cop, you know, clips maybe. I don't watch, I don't have time to watch any of these shows that are on this network. Brian is like, how in the world are you making decisions about canceling a show that you don't even watch? Not only do you not watch it, but you don't even care about the numbers. It would be one thing if he had not watched Beat Cop, but Beat Cop was at the bottom of its time slot, right? That would be completely different. Then it's like, it doesn't matter if I watched it or not. I could absolutely adore that show. But if it's not going to attract ad revenue, I need to get rid of it and put in a show that is going to get us those ad dollars, okay? That Disney cash, all right? (laughs) You know what I mean? Anyway, so that would make more sense and be more understandable. But the fact that you didn't watch it or any of these shows, you're making this decision despite the fact that it's successful, And he's like, I see where it's going in the future. Do you? How long have you been in business? Is it just because you're conventionally attractive? Is that why? Is this pretty privilege like for a man? Because I feel like he didn't was not a successful person prior to this. If he's talking like this so openly and freely, like this is how I operate. So they leave, right? So Brian leaves. He's just done with this. And Julie, who is the second in command there, I guess the assistant vice president of programming, who sat there and said nothing 
I thought originally that she was the secretary. Okay, just in there to take notes. But apparently she is the number two person. She has, her office is probably nearly as big as his. Okay. So she's walking Brian out and it's like, I'm really sorry. This is the first time I'm hearing about this. I know it doesn't make sense, but he's the one in charge. I don't really, I'm only number two. I don't really get, I don't get a say. What he says goes and that's it. So Brian leaves in a huff, right? But he got, homeboy got a plan. Brian has a plan. He has an ace up his sleeve. So we, when we check back in with Brian, you'll see what I'm saying. Because Keith is out here thinking he's the man. I'm making all these decisions. I'm about to wreak, you know, wreak havoc up here, wreck shop. But oh wait, pump your brakes. Pump your brakes. You're going a little too fast. So the next scene we see, Maggie and Lieutenant Palermo or Vincent. And he's apparently on surveillance, but he is not under any sort of cover. All right. He is in what's clearly an unmarked police vehicle. He is in a whole suit in some, not even an alley in like the back field of some buildings And he's watching, like, when I tell you they're 150 to 200 feet away from him, and he's just sitting there full face through the window, okay? (laughs) Just like, it looks like a headshot, right? You have the head, the shoulders, part of the chest. You can see all that through his passenger side window. And these people are just packing stuff into a van. I don't even know what type of case it was, but I'm like, hey, why is the lieutenant the person who's doing surveillance? For one. Two, why is he by himself? That seems super dangerous. Three, why is he just straight out in the open? Like, is the point of it to scare these people off away from crime? Is that what it is? Not necessarily surveilling to get evidence to prosecute them, and arrest, well, arrest and prosecute them, but to let them know the police are watching you so that they'll move different. I don't, I don't know. This seems very inappropriate. Okay, this seems very inappropriate. But then Maggie just pulls up. How the heck did she know where he was at? I don't think we ever find out for real. Because if you're on surveillance, we didn't have car phones. We didn't have... But maybe she had a car phone because her, her her drop top, her convertible. Okay. She, she was stunting on everybody. Okay. (laughs) She was like, I got this producer, writer, creator money. Okay. I get three checks. Count them. One, two, three checks. So anyway, she figures out where he is. How? I do not know. Did someone at the police precinct tell her where he's at, which is a problem because he's on surveillance. He's on the clock. That's terrible. I'm questioning how she found out where he is, but whatever, we're going to move on from that. She does. She pulls up in her bright red convertible. I believe it's a Mercedes, but I don't know. I didn't really see the front of it. So I don't, I'm just guessing, but has the top down fully exposed, pulls up next to him, gets out her car. Now these people still packing this van with stuff. I don't know. Is the stuff stolen? Is it 
hiding drugs? Is it human trafficking? I don't know what he's supposed to be observing. But she get out and she walks over to his car, to his passenger side seat and is like, what's up? He's like, I'm on surveillance. She's like, what? (laughs) He like points to these people. (laughs) She's like, uh, yeah, this is real obvious out here. (laughs) This don't make no sense, but we gonna just let that go. She let that go because she was like, this don't. The math ain't mathin'. Like this, you're better than this. You're better than this. So I'm assuming that it's to scare these people off and cause them to move different and get sloppy. That's what I'm gonna assume. Okay. So she tells him, we need to talk. Can we go to dinner tonight? And he says, well, Veronica has a school play. His daughter has a school play tonight. And she says, oh, well, what time is it? We can eat early. And he says, no, I have to pick Richie up from band practice before that. So Maggie says, well, I can pick him up and then we can all go to dinner together. And he says, you know, I thought we discussed this, that we have to keep this relationship at arm's length. And, you know, I love you like a sister. Yeah, yeah. He said, I love you like a sister. Like a sister, a sister. Okay, so like at that point, at that point, girl, pick up your stuff and go, okay? Because y'all just friends. If you want anything more, you're gonna have to disillusion yourself from that because he says, I love you like a sister. As in we have one or both of the same parents, meaning that this is only a friendship. I hold you in high regards. I feel that you're close as I as close to me as a sibling would be, a family member, someone I want to protect, someone I care about, but not someone I want to have sex with. So... Taking that into consideration, she just glosses over that, right? And she's like, oh, is this this because the guys at the precinct are still busting your chops, right? And he says, oh, no, no, this is when he says it. He says, I love you like a sister, but once you revealed that you fashioned beat cop after me, I haven't heard the end of it. Or you were, I was the inspiration for Beat Cop. I haven't heard the end of it. So then Maggie calls him out for continuing to call her kid and says, you're only nine years and four months older than me. That's not necessarily a generation gap. Girl, it is. But (laughs) listen, depending on where it falls, one year could be the difference between generations to be honest, right? And she then says, well, listen, the fact is that Beat Cop may be canceled. That's what I wanted to talk to you about. And he, so she's upset about this. He's like, oh, that's terrible. Like he's fine with that, okay? (laughs) Because he's been getting the business because he's been the inspiration for Beat Cop. And think about it. Like Bert is over 
the top. So your colleagues or their spouses or other family members are watching this and are like, oh, you work with Vincent. Oh, does he act like this? Does he got waving his gun around like that? You know, do he do he got a terrible tan? <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> is it, you know, is he out here doing this? So he's not upset about this, but he sees that Maggie is upset about it, clearly, because this is something she created. This is something that has brought her a lot of money. Okay, and success. So he's like, well, you, you've you been complaining about this anyway. So you said that you wanted to write a book. Now you have the time. You have, you're financially stable enough after all of the money that you've made on this show that you have the time now and the ability to write that book. And so she's like, you know, you're right. And then he goes to kiss her and he kisses her on her forehead. Her forehead. Love you like a sister. Kissed her on her forehead. That girl, it that ain't it. He don't see it for you. He don't see it for you. Okay? No. We don't know how long they have known each other. Because we don't know, we don't actually know how long Beat Cop has been in production and then on TV. Because we know at least for two, the last two seasons, they've been in the top spot of their time slot. But that doesn't mean that the show wasn't running for like seven years. And just recently it has taken off, you know, like it could have been doing good enough to keep getting renewed. And then these last two, it's skyrocketed, right? We don't know. We don't know how long she has known Vincent, obviously longer than when she created the show and sold it. So let's assume that it has only been two seasons, even though the way these people are talking about the type of money they're making, it seems like they're real comfortable in this. And that seems like a lot longer than two seasons, because especially those who are more senior actors, because we hear from Andy who is a seasoned actor. And the way he's talking is like, I'm comfortable in this. But as a seasoned actor, you know at any point your show could be canceled. So that's why it makes me think that there's some level of longevity that he was probably able to put some money to the side. So in case it got canceled today, he would still be all right. But we also don't know what... Like how Vincent and Maggie met. We don't know where his wife is or at least the mother to his children because like, is he divorced? Is his wife no longer with us? Did the wife run off with somebody else with his partner in the police force? Now that would have been something. Like, can we can we get the backstory about how he's, he sounds like he's a single dad, not co-parenting. But like a straight up, I got these kids full time. But like, yeah, because I want to know the circumstances under which they met. Because we didn't hear anything from Jessica's introduction saying that she had, that Maggie had worked for a newspaper, perhaps the crime beat. She just wrote about 
she just wrote detective fiction. You know, did she get into a car accident or was she a victim of a crime? And that's how she met Vincent. And just, you know, in the process of that case being investigated and prosecuted, they became closer and she was able to tag along and see how he worked and how others, um, you know, treated him, how he treated others in the precinct. I don't know. It would make more sense if she was a crime reporter. If she was a crime reporter, but she kind of, yeah, okay. If she had been a crime reporter, she's not a journalist. She's a writer. And those are two different things. Not every person who can write can write for journalistic purposes, right? The research that's needed to be done for that, the sentence structure, paragraph structure, et cetera, right? But she's writing poems and she was, well, she was able to transition to being a television script writer, which is very different um, than writing a, a book and definitely poems and stuff like that. But I'm going to say, we're going to make up a backstory right now. Right quick, this is what we're going to do. Because I'm frustrated that we don't know any of this information. So based on some context clues, this is what I'm going to say. This is what Monty is assuming is the backstory. Because they did not give us the pleasure of letting us know anything. Okay? So what I'm going to say is that Maggie was working for a literary magazine, okay? And she was writing her detective stories and was asked to do a piece on Vincent. Let's say when he was promoted to lieutenant, they wanted a story on him because he was promoted to lieutenant after solving a serial murder case, okay? That's what we're gonna say. We get real detailed here, okay? So... She goes to interview him and, you know, follow him around and do an in, find out in-depth information about him. So they become friends, right? She becomes a trusted confidant of his and vice versa, right? She catches romantic feelings for him, which is clear to this day. And she creates Beat Cop based on him and a little bit of, you know, her her detective fiction mindset and knowing that people like over the top stuff. So she creates, she puts it all together and creates beat cop. Now, because they have developed a friendship in this, in the process of writing this article, she meets his kids. We're going to say that, um, he, He's divorced, right? But then the wife died. Okay, that's what we're going to say. So they got divorced because he put more time in the job than he did in the marriage, but he loved his kids. So he made time for the kids. He just didn't make time for his wife. So they got divorced, right? But then she's going to have to die because she can't like exist in this world for him to be like the, the hero single dad working as a lieutenant type of thing. So she died, unfortunately, 
we don't know how she died. She just gone. She's no longer with us. So Maggie, who has this unrequited love for Vincent, she continues to stay around. They, Like I said, they developed a, a friendship. She's comfortable enough with his kids to offer to pick up his son from band practice. Okay, so that means that they know her and that the school would be willing to release him to her. Okay, he would be willing to get into the car because he knows her. So we've taken that into consideration. So that doesn't happen overnight. So she's clearly been around the kids. And also if his ex-wife was around, then I don't know if that would have, if she would have let that happen. Okay, like, oh, you got time for this woman, but you ain't have time for me, the mother of your children. So yeah, that's why she got to die. Uh, sorry to that lady that we don't know. And so now she's trying to, he's had it. She died, uh, we're going to say five years ago. Okay. So he's had enough time to grieve and move past that. And it's, seems like he's ready for love again. So that's where we meet them. He's, he has fully grieved his wife. You know, it's always there. It's always there, but he's, he's ready to find love again. He, but he, he don't see it for Maggie because Maggie is his friend, his sister, someone who understands him, someone he can confide in a younger, a kid, quote unquote, a kid, a, you know, this young woman doing amazing things, amazingly successful, but down to earth, the kids like her it's great, but I'm not trying to sleep with her. Like that, that ain't it. That ain't it. But Maggie still is in love with this man. She's willing to accept his children and create a family. That's where she's at. He ain't there. He ain't never getting there. I'm sorry, Maggie. He is never getting there. Okay. You got your hopes up and everything like that. And he has no idea that... He is leading you down the golden path only to like string you along for years. And I don't even think it's purposeful because he says, I love you like a sister. And what would he say when she's like, but I love you. I want to be your wife. Like I want to, you know, help you raise your children. He's going to say, um, I told you I love you like a sister. Now, the fact that you ignored that, that's on you. Not for nothing. That's on you. I was very clear and I also kept calling you kid. So to let you know that I did not see you as a potential romantic partner. Now she missed all of this. She just, now we hear all of this and we picked up what he was putting down, but she surely glided over what he said and how he said it. And the fact that he kissed her on her forehead, she should have known at that point. She should have just gave up the ghost at that point and moved on with her life. But of course she didn't. So anyway, she leaves, right? After getting the kiss on the forehead, she thought it was going to be a kiss on the lips. It was a kiss on the forehead. On the forehead, that's worse than the cheek. Okay, that's worse than the cheek because at least on the cheek, you might, maybe you get a little bit of lip, okay? <laughs> maybe you turn your head real fast and it, it turns out to be a lip kiss, you know, tricks and, and stunts. But your forehead he kisses his kids on the forehead before he tucks them in at night, girl. He thinks of you as a sister, like a little 
sister. Mm. I Well, I can't even say I'm sorry to tell you this. He told you this and you were like, what the hell ever? I'm going to be his wife one day. So let, let the delusion continue. So anyway, so now the next scene, we're back in Keith's office. He's in there doing voice notes and he's talking about canceling the entire Friday lineup of TV shows. And he he describes what those, I think he talks about two or three of the shows from Friday night. And then Julie comes in to tell him that she's leaving for the night. And she asked him to rethink his decision to cancel Beat Cop because it's doing really well for the network. And at the end of the day, that's the most important. And he's like, you know what? Don't think about it. All I need you to do is to look pretty, to nod your head and to take stupid meeting or dumb meetings. And Julie said, stops and is like, when I took this job, you said that I would be able to develop my own shows. And Keith then says, yeah, but it's just not this time. Eventually, but not right now. All I need you to do is to hang on to my skyrocket, you know, and just lay back and enjoy the ride. Yeah. So Julie's like, I could murder this man. Spoiler, she doesn't. But if she did, I wouldn't be mad about it, but then you can't get his job. So then that, that would be counterproductive. So she leaves as the phone is ringing and it's a call from Brian, the president of Monolith, Monolith, T-H, Monolith. And we only hear one side of the conversation. We only hear Keith's side of the conversation. And he's like, no, I don't want to discuss Beat Cop. No, I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. I don't care. And so Brian, we then see where Brian is. He hands the phone over to an older woman. And we find out that that is Harriet Duvall. And she is like, usually I don't get involved with this. Okay, these decisions. But as the chief stockholder and chairman of the board of Monolith, plus the fact that I'm a stockholder at Federated, your job, FBS, your station. And at one point, I was very familiar with a lot of the board members. And to this day, I still know a few I have questions about what the deal is with you, the talk of canceling Beat Cop. And the range of emotions that Keith goes through. So he's all lean back talking to Brian. I don't care. I'm canceling that show. I don't care. I don't care. Then when he hears Harriet Duvall, he sits up straight in his seat. He is leaning into the phone. He is listening attentively. And then when she goes through, he's like, um, yeah, well, uh, thank you for calling. It's an honor to, we haven't met in person yet, but it's an honor to, to speak with you on the phone, blah, blah, blah. And after she drops the hammer about how you out here trying to cancel beat cop. Okay. Because she's the one, she's concerned about the numbers. 
Okay, the board members are concerned about the numbers. The people who hold your job in the palm of their hands care about the numbers. They don't care about your youth demographic in the future. They care about the current numbers and keeping them and increasing them, okay? And you're talking about getting rid of a whole lineup of shows for no defined reason. And so when she says that, his face drops, right? He is just like, his soul has left his body, okay? <laughs> it's just like, she's the woman. And she's like, because I think I feel like there's a, in one of the versions of this, there may be, I feel like she watches the show. I feel like there was some discussion about the fact that she actually watches and likes Beat Cop, but that's not on the Free V version. But correct me if I'm wrong, does anybody else remember seeing in this episode that Harriet Duvall actually watches and likes Beat Cop? We don't see her watch it, but I think there is some conversation about that. Um, yeah, sometimes there's a scene that is in one version, like maybe the television version or on certain stations when they bought the package, it's on there or it's on the DVD. But I really feel like I, she was talking about the fact that she watches and likes Beat Cop and that's why she was willing to make this call. But anyway, let me know if y'all remember that. So the next scene, we're in Maggie's either office or apartment. I forget where, but we're with Maggie and she gets a call from Brian. And he's telling her that Beat Cop is safe. However, Keith has agreed to watch three episodes tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. in the screening room in in the studio. And you have to choose those three episodes and have them pulled for him to watch. So she's like, oh, great. Thanks for dumping this, you know, make or break situation on me. But I'm like, at the end of the day, he's right to have called you and asked you to pick the three best episodes for the simple fact that this is your child. This is your series. This is your creation. You write for this. You created these characters you give them voice and you know when you sat down, well, actually, I, I, you knew when you saw them act out what you wrote, which episodes you felt in your spirit, like that's, that's amazing work. I did that, okay? I did that. Mind you, it's the actors, but they have to have a great writer because we've seen some great actors with some terrible scripts and it is just a whole mess, okay? And if it comes out reasonable, you find out that the reasonable parts are because the actors ad-libbed. So there's that. It, it is a joint effort to make a successful show. And it, Brian is right. The person who is the closest to this has it closest to their heart is Maggie. And she's the one who knows these are the three episodes that would convince anybody that this is an amazing series. 
And that's it. It may not be the pilot. It may not be the first episode, but there, I promise you, there are episodes. There might not even be three whole episodes, but there are definitely episodes that when she saw on screen full out done that she was like, that that's what I'm talking about. This is, this is my show. I did that. Those actors tore that up. Okay. But I wrote that. So yeah. She, she felt some type of way, but she should have been thankful that Brian had the foresight because he would have just chose any three episodes, but she's the one who is best suited to make that decision. So the next scene, we are in Maggie's office and Bert comes in and he is upset because he's heard that Beat Cop may be canceled you know, or is on the the decision block, but is likely to be canceled. And Maggie is like, um, didn't you say you wanted off the show yesterday about like your top spin and your, you know, all that? Like you're, you're not being able to use your full acting potential on this show. And he's like, wait, when did I say that? And she said, on set yesterday. He said, how are you out here believing anything I said on set? Don't do that. Don't do that. (laughs) What? So basically he's saying, I was putting on a show for everybody else. Why he was putting on a show, I don't know. I was putting on a show for everybody else. Like, I'm not actually trying to lose this bag because you're right. Y'all pay me an exorbitant amount of money regularly. Those checks clear, all right? I'm about to get direct deposit because that's about to be a thing, okay? (laughs) I got three ex-wives that I got to pay alimony to. And I got four and a half kids. There's one on the way, okay? So I'm paying, (laughs) paying child support for four kids. About to be five and three ex-wives. I need this job (laughs) so I can tan and eat and pay all these bills. Anyway, so the next scene, we see Keith. He is on the phone in the screening room, not paying attention to the actual shows. He is on the phone with Ray. Now, Ray is Leo, the agent, their agents that have a agency together. And Keith is asking Ray where Leo is. Like, why am I talking to you? I usually talk to Leo. And Ray is like, oh, well, Leo is off site. I don't know. No, Leo is there at the studio. And Keith is like, but he's not here with me. He may be at the studio, but he's not here with me. Because Keith was requesting to see Leo. And I guess because Leo had not shown up yet, he called the office and ended up speaking with Ray. So we then see a gloved hand reach through a curtain with a gun and fire twice. We then see Keith's hand that was holding the telephone Okay, drop 
And clearly he is, he was shot and killed. So the next scene we have Lieutenant Palermo, Vincent, is the one who's assigned to this homicide. Of course, you know, what happened with that surveillance job? I guess homicide is a priority, right? No, but it is, but because <laughs> like, it is. So he is speaking with the projectionist and like Maggie is right at his elbow this entire time. She is standing right there. Now, what type of suspect is she that she's standing right next to him as he's interviewing people? Doesn't seem like a suspect to me. So he speaks with the projectionist who says that, because he asked him, did you hear any gunshots? And the projectionist is like, of course I did. He was watching Beat Cop. But there were a there were like, there were a few shots that sounded a little too real. So I turned off the projection machine, projector, <laughs> projector. And I saw a woman shaking the deceased body, screaming, right? So Julie, tur- Julie, Maggie turns to Vincent and says, that's Julie Pritzer. She, she's the one who found him. Now that's his number two, right? The assistant vice president. And the, a, a uniformed officer comes over to Vincent and points out that they have found the murder weapon and it was behind the curtain and a little ways in, and apparently there was a door at the back of the screening room behind the curtain. And so Vincent asked Maggie, like, where does that door lead? She's like, I didn't even know it existed until right now. So they're looking at this secret passage. So that's what the uniformed officer is doing. And the door is unlocked as well. So they've recovered what appears to be the murder weapon and found a not so secret, secret, well, a, a pass through. We'll say it's a pass through because it's not secret. Maggie just doesn't know about it because I'm um, assuming she never had a need for it. And she hasn't been working at this studio for decades where others who have know about this. So the next scene Brian is trying, well, during the same scene, but Brian is trying to get in and it's like, what are you talking about? I can't come in here. Do you know who I am? I'm the president of Monolith. And so Maggie walks up to him and it's like, Brian, just follow me. Let's just get out of here. And so she was like, wait, he's like, oh my God, what happened? And she said he was shot twice in the chest and is dead. And she's like, wait a second, aren't you supposed to be at a meeting in La Costa? And he was like, oh, it was canceled. But, you know, this means that now Julie is the one who's in charge of programming. And she's going to be getting call a whole bunch of calls. I got to find her and, you know, pay condolences or whatever. And so he goes to get into his car to go to the office, FBS's office. And Maggie's like, wait, no. Julie is in the dispensary. She's the one who found the body. She's still messed up about it. So Vincent then catches up with Maggie and tells her, 
that the coroner believes that this is the next scene. The coroner believes that the murder happened between 10.30 a.m. and 11 a.m. And that there are prints on the gun. So Maggie is like, well, that's stupid. Why would you leave the murder weapon with your fingerprints on it? (laughs) Which is true. Like, I don't. Okay. Vincent is a seasoned detective, right? And he's just going to be, oh, he's just going to dismiss what Maggie says, right? What would make more sense is that the killer used, wore gloves, which she says he probably wore gloves and the fingerprints on the gun is the gun's actual owner, not the murderer. But like he, he really like dismisses her theory here. And I'm like, but that makes more sense than a person leaving the murder weapon with their fingerprints on it at the scene. It's not even like the, you were driving two miles away and you know, pulled into a Walmart parking lot and there was a gun in the parking space next to you and come to find out it was the murder weapon and it had fingerprints on it. You know, the person thought they had disposed of it properly, but clearly didn't. Not just at the scene, not just like fired the gun twice and then dropped it where it was and skedaddled. Like what in the world? Now we saw that the hand was gloved. So we know that Maggie is correct in her suggestion that the actual murderer used somebody else's gun that had their fingerprints on it, had the the owner's fingerprints on it and used it with a glove. So Vince is like, well, you know, Killers aren't so smart. I'm like, uh, clearly detectives aren't either because what she said makes sense. Now, I don't know why he tried to diminish her contribution to this, her sensical, not nonsensical, but very logical conclusion. So he then goes to speak with the cast and crew, right? And... Maggie brings him over and everyone, all the important people give their alibis while we're there. Okay. While the audience is there. Okay. (laughs) And everybody has some level of an alibi. Now, Bert, he says he was in his motor home and, you know, in between, well, at that time, between 1030 and 11, he was in his murder, goodness, motor home by himself. Now, the next scene, Vincent goes to speak with Phil, the property guy. And because an officer comes over and says, hey, the property guy, the prop guy wants to speak with you. So he goes over and he says, at about 1030, I went to check the gun safe and I noticed that there was a pistol missing. And I was concerned because the props that we use are real guns. So I thought, well, maybe my assistant gave it to somebody, right? The person 
gave it to a person. And now he keeps qualifying this like just because it's, you know, just because it's this person may have gotten the gun doesn't mean that they're the murderer. He keeps saying that. And so he's like, but I, it wasn't my assistant because, well, two things. One, he noticed that there were prime marks at the bottom of the safe. So whatever, it wasn't a full like safe with like a code and everything like that. It was a cabinet. It was a gun cabinet. And whatever the lock was on was pried off so that they could access the guns in the closet. And also his assistant had not arrived for the day yet, which I'm like, it's like one o'clock in the afternoon. Where is your prop assistant? If y'all started at six o'clock in the morning, like y'all, excuse me? Like maybe maybe they're like an intern or they're an apprentice, so they're getting hours and they have school or work during the, the day and they come in the late afternoon. So I'm, I'm going to give them a pass and say that's what they're, they have a certain number of hours that they need to work for a degree or whatever. And, and that's why they're not there for the first whole half of the day. So Vincent is like, yeah, oh, that's cute. That's cute. Whose gun is it? And so Phil says, it's Bert's gun. But that doesn't mean, that does not mean that he used it to murder someone. So you know what this tells us, right? One, Bert would not need to, now this is just conclusions. This is just conclusions. As a non-detective, Okay, these are my regular everyday true crime watching Murder, She Wrote, Loving, Matlock supporter, okay, Perry Mason lover, Columbo observer, okay, with a dash of diagnosis murder expert here. You're going to tell me that the gun that Bert uses on the show every day. Okay, this is his service weapon. So he's wearing it and he's using it in every single scene. Okay, whether he's pulling it out or if he just got his hand on it, because you know, he's just that type of person, right? It's going to have his fingerprints on it, right? Because there's no reason he would not have fingerprints on it. It's his assigned prop gun, for one, two, so y'all are going to find Bert's prints all over it because he uses it on a daily basis as his character, right? And wouldn't he need said prop gun? Two, nobody would find it strange if he was carrying the gun around. So why would he leave it on the scene? He would, because obviously they have more than one gun. Okay, for his character. All right, I'm sure. So it would not be odd for him to be walking around with it. Now, walking around with it in a gloved hand, 
But if it's his gun, he would not have needed a glove, right? So <laughs> this does not convince Vince that Bert is being set up, okay? And it's not even a setup. Like I, the, the fact that it has Bert, that the murder weapon has Bert's fingerprints on it. And it was found at the scene of the murder where the murderer shot from and fled from. That is not even a setup. Like I wouldn't even consider that as damning evidence. That would be discounted so quickly under these circumstances in real life. Now I'm not saying they wouldn't have it in the back of their head. You know, did he have a motive? You know, is he, did he think that he could throw us off by trying to frame himself? Of course, you keep that in the back of your head. But on the surface, it is wild that after hearing, and also the last point, Bert would not need to steal his own gun. He could go to the prop master and say, hey, I need my gun for the next scene. Thank you. And walk away with it. He didn't even have to return it after the scene. He could have returned it at the end of the day and nobody would have said anything. Why would he have had to prop why would he have to pry open the gun cabinet? He wouldn't. That's the answer. He wouldn't. He wouldn't. And you can't convince me that this man, that Bert, has the wherewithal to frame himself for a murder he actually committed. There is no way that that man had the sense God gave him to put that together. And come to the conclusion, I'm going to frame myself, make it so obvious that it was me, that nobody would believe it was actually me. That, that, he ain't smart like that. No disrespect, all disrespect. The truth is the truth. That man didn't have enough sense to, to, to put that together, okay? So the fact that Vincent... With this information, okay, places Bert under arrest for murder is wild to me, okay? Is absolutely wild to me that you would detain, if not fully arrest, this man based off of this information, like, it's not even, like, logical that you wouldn't be suspicious about how easy this was, okay? Now, can an argument, can he make an argument that, well, Bert is real simple. He don't have the sense that God gave him. So he would be sloppy with this murder, an argument could be made about that, yes, but that's definitely not 
enough to go to a prosecutor and say, no, no, no. Yeah, it looks like he he was framed, but he no, he's just real simple. What? Nobody's going to believe that. And you know what else no one's going to believe? That he was smart enough to have framed himself. He's right there on average. Okay, right there, not above, not below average. Just right there on average level of intelligence. Okay, now he's on the high end of entitlement now. (laughs) But that does not make a murderer. Okay, so... Bert is arrested and he's like, but I am a police officer. He's, he's really doing some method acting here. He is distraught. Okay. Not for nothing. I would be too. Like, you can't tell me that you just living your whole life. You're making like a crap ton of uh, money. You are well-regarded, you're on a successful show, you have a good level of stability, well, except for Keith coming in here trying to mess that up, but you, and then suddenly you're thrown in jail accused of murder? I would be hysterical too, rightfully so. So the next scene, Maggie is speaking with, in, in her office, speaking with Leo, the agent, And she's on the phone, right, with the director telling him to give Andy, the captain, all of Bert's lines for now and run through with Andy and Dana. So then she hangs up the phone and she's like, you know, I'm basically she's trying to find a replacement for Bert. Okay. And Leo is like, yeah, how about some of my clients? She looks at the names that he gives her and was like, no, these are terrible. You're my agent, okay? You're supposed to want me to be successful, okay? Because you get, you eating off of this. Like you eating off of this. And she said, wait a second, didn't you also, didn't you and Ray represent Keith as well? And Leo says, yeah, for the past nine months, we're the ones who got him this, job at FBS. So Maggie then gets a call from Brian and he, they, she calls him to the office to meet with Julie. And as they're going to Julie's office, he tells Maggie that there may not be a show. Like, so we were all possibly off. Then we were on because Harriet stepped in then we are possibly off because Julie has other plans. And so Maggie is like, listen, Beat Cop is an ensemble show and we can replace Bert. You know, we have some lines on some really great actors that can just step in and it won't be a problem. And Julie is like, it doesn't work like that, okay? Because the network is only behind it with Bert as the lead cop, right? And also the fact that, so Bert is the linchpin of the show, right? According to the network, that's how they feel. So without him, there is no show. But also they, meaning Julie, has 
proposed a show about a neuro, a female neurosurgeon. And she wants Dana, yes, the co-star Dana from Beat Cop, to star in it as the chief neurosurgeon at a hospital. And Maggie is like, Dana is not even old enough to have graduated from medical school. And so Julie is like, ah, well, we're going to work that out in the script, in the dialogue. And I'm like, listen, there was Doogie Howser. So, yeah. But I'm like, he was a doctor. He wasn't a neurosurgeon. He wasn't a brain surgeon. So I'm like, girl, girl, no, 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 Julie, no. So... Brian is like, Beat Cop has, is a proven hit. You don't know anything about if that brain surgeon show gun do numbers. And Julie says, yes, but it's a proven hit with Burt Rogers. So they leave the office and Brian is telling Maggie, like, you have to find the real murderer so that we can get Burt out of jail and he can get back to work. Because, you know... We, she's like, well, you know what? Maybe it's time for us to move on. And, you know, he's just dumb enough to have done the the murder, right? Which is like a passing line. But like, honestly, that wouldn't hold up in court. Like, it wouldn't hold up in court. So Brian is like, but it's, what about your staff, your crew, your cast? And she's like, they'll find other jobs. And Brian's like, what about my job? <laughs> She's like, oh, yeah, that's a different story. So she's like, I'm not a detective. And he's like, but you can do, you have to do this. You know what? You know what? We'll make that Italian show that you were you're pitching to us. She was like, love in Naples? And he's like, yeah. She's like, you're not just talking crap, smack, right? You're, you're serious. He's like, yes, we'll, we'll work that out. Now, a lot don't care who tell it, okay? He desperate. He trying to keep his job. He don't care nothing about no love in Naples. So the next scene, we're at the jail and Maggie is speaking with Bert, who's crying, but we don't see any tears. But we also, based on the camera angle, it's possible that we would not see tears. So he's hysterical, okay? And he's like, I didn't kill him, okay? I'm a law enforcement officer and I uphold law and order, and Maggie is like, please stop crying. I, this, is, this is making me very uncomfortable. I hate when you cry. <laughs> he was like, I need your help. I need your help. And she was like, I promise I will help you. But you have to stop crying. Now, I'm going to leave that alone. Okay, let that man cry. Like he is in jail and possibly going to prison for a murder he didn't commit. Okay, so is he a jerk? On set, yes. Okay, is he pretentious? Yes. Is he entitled? Yes. Is he a bad actor? Fair to middling, okay? But he is in jail for murder and all of the evidence is pointing to him. That man is in touch with his feelings enough to cry in front of her. And she's like, you know, Inside Edition may have hidden cameras in here. Girl, you know that's a lie. You know, that's a whole lot. And he's like, oh, and he pulls himself together because, you know, he has to have this masculine image. I'm like, ma'am, let that man cry his emotions out. This is traumatizing. And you're like, get it together. 
Anyway, so Maggie then goes and finds Vince and he's convinced that it is Bert. Okay. He's like, it's his gun with his prints and he has no alibi. And Maggie's like, clearly he was framed. Okay. And you know, this would mean the end of beat cop, right? And Vincent turns and looks at her and is like, yeah, (laughs) and giggles. This grown man giggles, okay? I was like, you giddy? You out here giddy? I'm about to lose this job, this stable job, this nice corner office job, something I created, even though I'd rather be writing romance and poetry and all of that stuff. Still, do you know what they pay me on a regular basis? I have a life that I cannot afford without this show. <laughs> You're out here giggling. You lucky you a, a lieutenant because I surely would have tapped your cheek real quick. Like <laughs> I'm not gonna not a full slap, but like tap your cheek just just a little bit, just shock you into reality here. That's disrespectful. You gonna giggle? Not even laugh, but tee-hee. But a tee-hee. That's even more disrespectful than laughing in my face. You gonna giggle? Sir, sir, I hate you, okay? <laughs> that, and it kind of like bubbled up too. <laughs> like that was joy coming out of him. He was like, <laughs> he giggled like a happy child. <laughs> it literally bubbled out of him. Girl, he said, I love you like a sister, kissed you on your forehead, and then giggled in your face about the fact that your show was about to be canceled. Girl, he don't love you like that. He ain't trying to wife you. He ain't even trying to make you his girlfriend. Okay, not even a friend with benefits, girl. You got all the friend and ain't never getting none of the benefits. Girl, temper your expectations. So anyway, Maggie goes back to set. Now, I don't know if Vince is at the studio or if Maggie returns to the studio after speaking with Vincent. I, I do not remember. It all kind of looks the same. Okay. <laughs> but Vincent may have been on set. Well, at the studio, I should say, not on set. At the studio. And Maggie then goes into the building and is on backstage, side stage, whatever. And she bumps into Andy and Dana. And so Andy is like, listen, y'all pay me great money. Okay. I'm living very well. I have zero complaints. Okay. But no, let me take it back. Let me take it back. Okay. So they're shooting a scene where they have Andy, who is the captain or chief of police. Right. I think he's a captain, but whatever. He could be the chief police, whatever. The brass. And they have him in a fake mustache and sunglasses. And he's like, there's new laws in town or something like that. And then they're like, cut, bring in the stunt double. So Andy walks off and Maggie comes up and he's like, this feels like I have a dead rat on my face. Like, listen, I am the gruff but kind 
chief or captain of the police, right? I can play gruff, but kind. What I can't play is whatever this is with this dead rat on my face. (laughs) It's like, Maggie, listen, listen, y'all pay me real well. Okay. Like I can retire before I'm a hundred. Well, okay. But you know, I'm concerned Like you need to do whatever you need to do in order to not have this show canceled because I had this happen before. I had a series cut out from under me or yanked out from under me where I was doing well, I was making money and I refused to let that happen again. Yeah, he ain't about to lose this money, okay? (laughs) But he still, he was like, I'm gonna go to my trailer and take a nap with this dead rat. A mess. It was a terrible mustache. Now I'm I'm not I will not lie to you. It was a terrible mustache. So Maggie is then speaking with Dana, who had been standing there during this while she was speak while Andy was talking to her. And Maggie says, uh, why didn't you tell me about the medical show? And Dana was like, I don't know what you're talking about. What medical show? And Maggie's like, where you were going to play a neurosurgeon? And she's like, listen, Julie loved it. Keith, there was nothing to tell you. There was nothing to talk about. Julie loved it. Keith didn't. So it was a dead duck. That's the, that was the end of it. And so Maggie says, like, not anymore. Because obviously since Keith is dead and Julie is the head of programming, it's no longer dead in the water. And Maggie then says, you said that during the murder, you were speaking with a Broadway producer or director. I forget what she said. Who, what, which one was it? And Dana is like, well, when did you become, you know, Sherlock Holmes or whatever she said? And Maggie's like, who was it? And she was like, okay, I didn't speak with them on the phone. I left a voicemail for them. She was like, well, you said you, you said that after that call that you ran into Leo, she was like, yes. She's like, Maggie says, no, that was a lie. Leo said that when he drove onto set, onto the studio lot, that the police wouldn't let him come in because the murder had happened. And Dana was like, well, I don't know why he out here lying because he and I were speaking for a half an hour before the murder happened And he was really scared. And so Maggie was like, what was he scared about? And she said, and Dana says, probably the fact that Keith had called him to the screening room and he thought probably to fire him. And like, or because he heard about the package that was being discussed. And Maggie was like, what package? And Dana's like, they don't tell you nothing? Like, you just don't keep your ears to the ground? Like, you don't get none of this gossip? Okay. So they were packaging the neurosurgeon show with 10% to Leo, which would have been 2.5 to $3 million to him if the network bought the series. And so... Maggie is like, wait a second, wait, wait, wait. So you're telling me my agent Leo is working to get 
one of the actors off of my show in order to put them on a show to replace my show. To which Dana says, girl, what, you think he was working for you? And then walks off. I'm like, I don't know. Leo was working for himself, okay? He's trying to get that 2.5 to 3 million. He don't care if you are on the street, okay? If He will just go on to the next client that's going to get him some money in his pocket. So Maggie then is walking around because she's now looking into this, right? But not for long, okay? Like this, we're more than halfway through this episode, All right, so (laughs) quick, fast, and in a hurry at this point. So Maggie is walking around the the executive area, which is now the dressing rooms, I believe, in the studio with the security guard, Bernsey. And we find out from him, because we see a poster for Langley Academy or Langley Hall. And it's a younger... It's a picture of Andy, but it's a younger picture, probably one of his, uh, the actor's headshots from when he was a bit younger. Not super young, but 15 years younger, okay? And so that was Andy's first show. And so Maggie was like, oh, that was taped here. And Bernsey says, yes, it was. The funny thing is that 15 years ago, When this show was here, Keith is the person who canceled Langley Hall. It was doing very well and he canceled it. Yeah, girl. Okay. Flag on the play. There we go. Okay. Here we, listen. (laughs) Y'all just showing all y'all hands in this episode, right? Like I said, quick, fast, and in a hurry. We're flying down the highway at this point. So the security guard then shows her the passageway from the screening room to the dressing rooms and tells her that years ago, there was an A-list actor who used to take a, a younger actress, an ingenue, if you will, to the screening room to watch the dailies. I, I, was that the news? I don't know. Was that adult content? I don't know. I don't know. But, and then would sneak back to his dressing room. Or they were watching the dailies, but they weren't watching it. They were having adult activities, which I think is what he was alluding to. So, okay, got it. And nobody, you know, so people like, obviously the security guard knew about it and other, some people knew, but most didn't. And so I'm like, how long ago was that? Because Bernsey does not seem that old. Like he seems a cool 45. So like... Well, he would have been 30, 15 years ago, but the way he was talking about that actor and the way Maggie's like, you were here when they built this studio, uh, sounds like he should be cast much older than he actually is. But anyway, so she, she goes through the passageway and sees, learns about that. So the next scene, Maggie is meeting with Harriet and Brian. And Harriet's like, we need evidence that it was not Bert. And Brian says, yes, we need hard proof. And Maggie's like, listen, I told you I'm not a detective. Like, what do you want me to do? And Brian says, well, you think like a detective. And that's really all we need. (laughs) So Harriet then says 
the network, no, tomorrow, the cameras are supposed to go back on to record Beat Cop. And the network has said that if Bert is not in it, they will not accept the episode. So now Maggie's in it. Like she got to get this resolved and get him out of jail tonight. Okay, not tomorrow, tonight. So Maggie goes back to her office and her assistant Vi is there. And so she's like, oh my God, you should have went home and blah, blah, blah. And so Vi is like, well, I didn't know if you may have needed me. So anyway, here's your messages. Um, so we got a call back and they said not available. And Maggie's like, well, which actors aren't available? She was like, all of them are not available. <laughs> Yikes. And then Vi hands her a, a VHS and says, we got this from, I guess, director. This was shot today. And he says, keep an eye out. There's a continuity issue. Keep an eye out for the, watch the pencil, right? Watch the, the pencil. So Vi leaves for the night. Maggie puts in the tape. And she's watching the scene. So when Andy is facing away from Dana, there's a pencil in his pocket. When he's facing towards Dana, there's no pencil in his pocket. So Maggie has an epiphany, a pencil epiphany. So she calls up Al, who's the director, and no, she must not have gotten it from the director, whoever she got it from. She then calls the director, Al, and he's like, yeah, no, he sent me a copy too. Yeah, that, um, you know, the disappearing pencil. I'm pissed that um, we have to reshoot it. So Maggie asked, like, what was the process? And so Al was like, the whoever is supposed to keep an eye on this for continuity purposes was not on her job. So when they shot the master scene, they, the pencil was there, but they had to change some camera angles and then call everybody back for the close-up shots, at which time the pencil was not there. So Maggie asked, well, what time was the master shot? And he says, I believe first thing in the morning, like first thing we shot that. And then she asked, there was something that happened at 1030. And after that happened at 1030, they called everybody back in to do the close-ups. And that's when the pencil was missing and nobody noticed. But the thing is, there's one person who's supposed to notice and they didn't. So like somebody needs to get fired. You about to lose your job. Okay, you have one thing. Now, all these, act the money they pay in these actors, now they got to reshoot this scene? Well, maybe they don't because uh, let, let's, let's keep it pushing and see what happens next. So the next scene, now Maggie was in her office. She then goes down with a flashlight to explore the secret passage, Right. So, or the passageway, the pass-through, whatever. We're going to call it a secret passage because that sounds better. And she's looking through it and she hears a door close and she hears somebody and it turns out to be Andy. Now she's in hiding, 
right? She's hiding. She's covered her flashlight. She's hiding in the shadows, but not sufficiently enough. So Andy is like, who's there? Come out. Who is it? He then strikes a match and holds it up and sees that it's Maggie. Maggie then takes off running. She runs into the screen, like through the curtain, into the screening room and up the stairs. The door bursts open and it's Vincent. And she like falls into his arms like it was Andy. Andy's the one who killed Keith. And Vincent is like, we know, we know. So the next scene, Maggie is speaking with Brian in her office. And Maggie has to explain to Brian how the disappearing pencil, disappearing, reappearing pencil was the key to solving the murder. She says that the yellow pencil was in Andy's pocket during the master scene um, or the the taping of the uh, scene, right? The first one, which was done first thing in the morning. Then there was a break, at which time he went and he murdered Keith, losing the pencil. So when he returned and they did close-ups, it wasn't there. So having heard that there was a continuity issue because all of the actors were told, like once the tape was edited and they saw the continuity issue... They notified all of the actors that, hey, you got to come back in first thing tomorrow and we have to reshoot that scene because there is a continuity issue with the pencil. So clearly Photoshop wasn't going to get it. So they had to reshoot it. So now that's why Andy went to look for the pencil because now he's been put on notice that it was missing and it was noticeable. But what they don't, what Maggie nor Andy knew was that Vincent had found the pencil already, had it dusted for prints. The prints come back as Andy's. And so they were coming to the studio to arrest him. So now Brian is like, okay, this is great. Okay, Bert is out of jail and back to work. Julie gave an order for Betty Barker Brain Surgeon. That's a terrible title. Okay, that is a terrible title, Julie. Okay, girl, I was, I was low. Was I rooting for her? Probably not. Anyway, so (laughs) it's a terrible name for a show. Anyway, she gave the order to produce it. And so now they have to replace Andy because obviously he has been arrested and will be prosecuted for the murder of Keith and Dana, who is going to be starring in this neurosurgeon show. So Maggie's like, oh, that's great. Brian's like, I don't know how I can ever thank you. This is amazing. We're, you know, everything's coming up roses. And so Maggie's like, love in Naples? And Brian's like, ooh, the timing's not right. But when the timing's right, I'll you'll have my full support. But not now. Not right now. Sorry, not sorry. Okay, can't control that. Timing is terrible right now. Okay, bye. So he leaves. And Vi comes in. 
And so Maggie is like, you know what? It's really great. It's really great. What am I complaining about? It's great. I'm going to dinner tonight with Vincent and his kids. And so Vi is like, does this mean? And Maggie says, I don't know what it means, but I'm in a better place than yesterday. You know, nothing can spoil this. Nothing. Then we hear Maggie and Bert comes storming in complaining about the script. And so Maggie just looks at Vi, Vi just looks at Maggie and that's how the scene ends. And that's how the episode ends. So that's that on that. I will say a very watchable episode. Now it was not a book end episode because we didn't see Jessica at the end closing it out. It also was not a pilot for a potential series from what we could see, from what we could see. Um, According to, that wasn't part of the trivia of IMDb, so I'm guessing. But I would not have been upset to see Maggie again. Although she shouldn't still be hanging on to Vincent trying to get a, a ring and a husband, okay? No, I think that it would have been nice to see one of two things. One, her producing love in Naples and perhaps one of the stars of the show being murdered, something like that. Or like having an element in it where one killed the other, but the the one actually killed the other. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Something like that. Like in that situation where the frame up was actually the murder. Well, no, we have if the frame fits. So they're, yeah, they, they already kind of did that. Yeah, they are already did that. So, but yeah, having her produce Love in Naples and somebody being murdered in the cast or something like that. But she don't need a man. She don't need a relationship. We ain't got to go into that. But if they did choose to, it should not be Vincent. Okay, it should not. Don't, don't have yourself embarrassed out here and heartbroken. Okay, because he don't, he love you like a sister. Or two, having her adapt one of Jessica's books for a limited series TV show, okay? That would have been great. And so she, her and Jessica could have solved a murder. I wouldn't want her to be murdered. That, that would be too much because we got to know her in this episode. So that, that wouldn't have worked. But them working together to solve the murder in not the murder that she is putting in the limited series, but a new murder. Yeah. So either of those two, either her standalone show, not a standalone show, an episode introduced by Jessica like this one, but with her producing Love in Naples, where her heart really is in that type of show. So seeing the difference and how she cares about that show and a murder happening in that situation or her adapting one of Jessica's books for a limited TV series. Cause we wouldn't want a whole series about it, but a limited series, like six to 10 episodes of six to 10 one hour episodes based on one of Jessica's books. 
either of those two episodes with Maggie in it, I'd watch. I'd watch it. Not a whole series. Just one of those two types of episodes. So that's that on that. Um, wishing the best to Maggie. Hoping that she sees clear, sees her way clear of Vincent. Unless she can keep him at arm's length and just a friend. Otherwise, she needs to completely separate herself from him so that she can heal, get her life together and find someone who will be the partner that she's looking for. Okay. Okay. And yeah. Yeah. That's that on that. It was a very watchable episode. Um, had to create a backstory for, Maggie and Vincent, but I love doing that. So, you know, love making up a story, especially a backstory to people. <laughs> like we, we are literally just dropped in the middle of their lives in some of these episodes and have no concept of how they got here. It's like being on the highway and seeing somebody walking and having no idea where did you come from and where are you going? You're just on the high, the side of the highway walking. I'm, I'm concerned. Okay. Just like that. Like, I don't know where you came from. I don't know where you're going. You're just far away from everything. So similar to that. Um, so sometimes we have to make up a backstory. So hopefully you like that backstory. I did. So that's the most important. (laughs) Anyway, so Next week, we will be talking about O'Malley's luck and your favorite and mine, Pat Hin, Hingle, Hingle. And like he, he gets more grandfatherly with every episode of Murder, She Wrote that he's in, okay? And just also the thickness of his Irish brogue is also change changes depending on the character he's playing. It's always there. It's just sometimes he leans into it. So in this one, he's leaning into that accent. The last time we saw him was in Unfinished Business. There may have been another one, but Unfinished Business is the last one that I clearly remember, right? In top of the head, instantly remember. And he had a touch of it, right? He had a, you could hear the accent, just a little taste, but in O'Malley's luck, okay, he all, he all, he is covered up in this accent. (laughs) Oh my goodness. But there, there's definitely like issues of sexism that are addressed in this uh, episode. So... I don't remember it being a super heavy episode, but it does deal with at least that serious topic besides murder because there's that and corruption. So there's that. But there is an element of um, sexual harassment as well as sexism. So those two issues come up in this next episode. So heads up, but I don't remember it being to a point where I was completely uncomfortable. Um, There is some level of uncomfortability. Is that a real word? But it is now. Uh, To it. 
as there should be, like as it was designed to be. Um, but we'll discuss how it was handled, you know, because this is in 1990. So is it like, hey, girl, that's how it happens. Okay. The honey, the sweetheart, the pat on the butt. Now that's never happened to me, but I'm not a small girl. So I, I think people just weren't chancing that. Okay. But the honey, the sweetheart and things like that, despite the fact that you're in a professional setting. So yeah, it's, we'll see how they, if it's just like, girl, that's how it go. Just like that. If you want to be in a man's world, that's what you got to deal with. Or if it's, this is unacceptable and we need to address it. I do not remember how they handled it. Would be surprised if they confronted it. Just going to say that. But I don't remember, so don't quote me. Anyway, until next time, you can find me on Instagram at the Fletcher Files Pod on Instagram. You can find me on Facebook, Meta, at the Fletcher Files Pod on Facebook, Meta. And of course, in the description box, you will find the link to my Patreon. Oh, the content of it all. If you're not on it, get into it. Like three years of content, okay? Outside of these episodes, okay? Just yes, yes. So until next time, promise me that you will have an amazing week and I will do the same. Until then, bye.